Psalm 60 is about the valleys we find ourselves in after having enjoyed the victories of the mountaintop. How often have we enjoyed those spiritual highs only to be met with setbacks and disappointments? How do we react in those times? Psalm 60 answers those questions. And so we've entitled Psalm 60, A Song for Life's Valleys. A Song for Life's Valleys. Now David found himself in a situation not too unlike those we ourselves encounter. In his case, he and his army had enjoyed many victories, but now they had suffered a defeat. According to the superscription, the psalm was written when David struggled with Aram Naharim and with Aram Sobah and Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the valley of Saul. You can cross-reference that to 2 Samuel 8, 3 and 13, as well as 1 Chronicles 18, 3 and 12. As we work our way through this psalm, we see David dealing with feelings of being a castaway or cast off by God. He's confused. And so he writes this miktam, or atonement psalm. Later, this psalm was to be sung in the temple to the tune of Shushan Uduth, or the Lily of Testimony. In verse 1 to 3, this song begins with a note of sadness. Sadness in verses 1 to 3. O oh God, you have rejected us. You have broken us. You have been angry. O oh, restore us. You have made the land quake. You have split it open. Heal its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people experience hardships. You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. David begins with an agonizing groan. You have rejected. You have spurned us. You have broken us down. This is divine rejection. And such rejection comes from God's displeasure or anger. And that's why David cries out, Restore us again or return us to where we once were. Now, he depicts this military disaster as if it is a natural disaster. You have made the earth to tremble. Uh, again, the language here is poetic, so it's not that he's necessarily talking about an actual earthquake, though one could certainly have occurred, but that he's describing the events of this lost as if his world has been rocked to its very core. This adds force to the thought that God is standing against them. This was no ordinary loss. They've seen hard things. The army's been routed. The land has been occupied by an enemy. They have been made by God to drink the wine that makes them stagger, or literally the wine of confusion. This cup is the similar to the one referred to in Isaiah 51.17. It is the cup of trembling, or the cup of God's fury, the cup of God's wrath. And so as they're drinking the cup of wrath, they're crying out in grief and asking for restoration. Now that brings us to verse 4 and 5. And here in the song, we see a summons. A summons. You have given a, a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth, Selah, that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand, and answer us. Now we need to be clear that though defeated, God had not abandoned his people. His love is greater than his judgment. And thus he gave them a banner or a standard to bear there on the battlefield. And it's to those who fear him, it's to those who stand in all of him. Even though they've been routed and defeated, 
God says, I want you to raise the banner up. My banner, the banner that declares who I am, you raise that up. It's similar to the words of Jeremiah 4, 6. Set up the standard or banner toward Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay. For I will bring a disaster from the north and great destruction. And so they raise up this banner. And by raising up that banner, it demonstrates their faith, their trust, their reliance that God will go before them. And so, as we'll see, he does. Now, they display it because of the truth. Now, the word for truth here, cassette, uh, appears only here in the entire Old Testament. It's more likely a Aramaic term that uh, refers to the Hebrew term cassette, uh, which uh, is the word for bow, as in bow and arrow. That means this banner of truth or this banner of refuge is displayed because of the enemy's bow, which I think is a better translation here, better understanding. Uh, when it says displayed because of the truth, I think it would be better rendered that it may be displayed because of the enemy's bow. Again, we need to keep in mind that throughout the Old Testament, a great majority of it is written in Hebrew, biblical Hebrew. But there are vast portions, uh, for example, in Daniel, uh, but scattered throughout the Old Testament where Aramaic terms are used, in fact, entire verses and passages in Aramaic. Uh, and this is exactly one of those. So uh, if uh, you want the Capellian translation, uh, I would translate it, you've given us a banner or a flag uh, to, to bear to those who fear you uh, that it may be displayed because of the enemy's bow. Again, remember, they're in a military action. They've been defeated, but now... Even though defeated, they're not going to raise the white flag of defeat. They're going to raise the flag of God, and it's going to stand as a testimony against the enemy's bows. See, God says they're still his beloved, and they will be delivered. You see, regardless of their sin or their circumstances, they're still God's beloved. Isn't that a beautiful truth? That should be so reassuring to us as believers that regardless of our circumstances, we're still the beloved of God. Uh, God's love is unconditional. God keeps his covenant. Uh, the Lord did, Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 and 8 says, The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. And so because of that, David clings to the fact that despite their circumstances, despite even their sin, God will hear their cry. That's why he adds here, save with your right hand and hear me or answer me. Lift your judgment, Lord. Reverse our fortunes. And we know you will because you love us and your faithfulness endures. Now the song in verse 6 to 8 turns to a tune of sovereignty. So we saw sadness and we see summons, but now look at sovereignty here in verses 6 to 8. God has spoken in his holiness, I will exalt, I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Zuccoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the head of my helmet. Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbowl. Over Edom I shall throw my shoe, shout loud, O Philistia, because of me. God here declares his sovereignty over the land. Listen, you may have defeated my people, but you're not going to occupy this land. Because why? 
He's holy. He has spoken in his holiness, in his separativeness, in his apartness. God says, I will exalt or rejoice in my land. He will repossess his property and he will order the surrounding territories to vacate. You see, God divided and distributed the land of Shechem. Now, the land of Shechem, that's 40 miles north of Jerusalem uh, in what was uh, once Samaria. God also measures out the valley of Succoth, which is on the east side of the Jordan, north of the Jabbok. The word measure out means to apportion. It was the same word used in the book of Joshua during the time of conquest, which meant to survey and apportion the land or divide the land uh, as an inheritance. God also claims Gilead and Manasseh in verse 7. Gilead is defined by the rivers of Arnon on the south and Yarmuk on the north. The Jordan Valley is its western boundary. And desert is on the east. Manasseh, one of the twelve tribes, occupied the hill country of Ephraim and parts of Gilead. And uh, here's something interesting. Uh, when you study through the Old Testament, uh, prophetically Ephraim, it, which is located in northern Israel, uh, is often referred to as God's helmet. Judah, which is located in the south, is God's scepter, or God's uh, symbol of authority. Uh, and then we have Moab on the east, which that God calls his wash pot. Okay? Uh, that's not a uh, nice thing to say about a uh, place. It's a place where he washes off his filth. Uh, you can really see how God views Moab. When God states, over Edom I will cast my show, he is using a metaphor of expressing ownership over the land. Okay, take your shoe off and cast it. Uh, here it's a, a metaphor for expressing ownership. Though interesting, it can also be a to cast your shoe at someone in that culture is also an insult. So uh, one way or another, he's either insulting Edom or he's possessing Edom or both. Uh, nonetheless, uh, finally, we have Philistia to the west, which will uh, claim God with shouts of triumph. So there will be a reverse in the battle. Uh, there was a temporary reverse in David's time, but if we look at this prophetically, right now Israel is occupied, though it possesses some of its land. It does not possess all of its land. It's still being occupied. But uh, when Christ returns, he will uh, reverse their fortunes and God will render divine judgment, and then the occupied territories will rejoice when God reclaims them and sits upon the throne. Finally, verses 9 to 12, we have the supplication part of the song. Who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? O give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Though God, through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. Here the psalmist responds to God's revelation that he will bring him into the fortified city of Edom. And so the response in verse 10 takes the form of, of a question. Is it not you, God, who cast us off? The psalmist's belief that God, God's going to, the rejection's not over yet. But at the same time, okay, Lord, you're going to be the one that's going to bring us there. You're going to bring us into Edom, the very one who rejected us. You know, we're seeing a, an aspect of David's own inner struggle. While on the one hand, he, he believes that God is going to do it. But 
he's still struggling with the fact, but God, you were the one who rejected us. You did not go out to battle for us. It was because of you we were defeated. But the reality is, yes, though God did not go into battle, it was not because God didn't want to. It was because of faithlessness or sin on David and the people's part. He continues here, if Israel takes Edom, then it's because God must be with her. And so he prays, give us help, give us aid from trouble. Help us against the adversary. For deliverance by man is in vain. He knows he can't do this himself. But if God is with them, they will do valiantly. And they will tread down their enemies, their adversaries. In a similar sense, Exodus 15.1, we have Moses' song after the Exodus. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And we have a similar case here on the part of David. You know, he's facing the reality that they have been defeated. They're struggling. But they know if God says he will do it, he will do it. And it's so important for us because, you know, many times we're in the valley. Sometimes we're in the valley because God's placed us there of no fault of our own. And other times we're in the valley because of our own sinfulness. We've put ourselves in the valley. Irregardless of who's put us in the valley, when we cry out to God, He will deliver. And we can sing. We can rejoice. You know, in Psalm 60, we, we, we see a tough time in David's life. God cut off David and his army. They were defeated. But at the same time, he says, I'm going to be true to my covenant. Boy, we should rejoice in that. Listen, we go through hard times because of our sin. We go through those times of discipline. But whom God loves, he disciplines. He chastens. And so while nobody loves chastening, while nobody signs up for chastening, while nobody raises their hand and says, give me more chastening, it's a reminder to us that God is faithful to his covenant and that he will restore us. He protected his people then, he'll protect them and today. He reclaimed his land, and he will reclaim his land in the days ahead. And he will restore Israel. Again, as we look at our own lives, we have our valley times. We have the times when God feels distance. We have times when we are defeated. But remember, he is our refuge. Cling to him, flee to him, run to him for refuge. Let him reclaim authority over our lives and allow him to reign over us in the future. And as he does, we will be restored. So if you find yourself in a valley, sing. Sing Psalm 60. Go to Psalm 60. See what God has done. We're not the first people in a valley. We certainly won't be the last. But just as God has restored the fortunes of others in the valley, so he will for us as well. Lord God in heaven, I thank you that when we come to the valley, whether by our own doing or yours, it's not to forsake us. It's not because you're far from us. It's not because you've left us or uh, forsaken us. But Father, it's so we can regroup and relearn to trust in you. And so, Father, help us to that end. Help us in our times in the valley to step back and find refuge in you, 
to see your sovereignty in all of these things, to supplicate, to, to petition you, to pray to you, but Father, also to rely on you and know that you are there and you are going to not leave us there, but lead us on to victory and restore us. So Father, again, for any who are in the valley, I pray that, Lord, you might bring them through that valley, bring them back to a new mountaintop. And Father, for those on the mountaintop, we take the warning to know there is a valley coming, but we do not need to despair because you will guide us. You will use your rod and your staff to comfort us and to bring us, bring us safely to the other side. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.